this episode, I speak to Raj Chowdhury, the CEO of Alloy, who shares his background in mergers and acquisitions. He started a marketing agency specializing in servicing technology brands before eventually selling it to a private equity-backed group called Engage. With support from the PE firm, Raj went out and made five acquisitions over five years before that group was ultimately sold again. You'll learn about how private equity firms work, the secrets behind how to put together a group that's attractive to buyers, and the importance of clean financials and transparency, and how to evaluate potential in the target companies. This one is packed full of fascinating insight, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Yeah, welcome to the podcast, and it's just sort of be useful if you could give our listeners an introduction to who you are. Sure, yeah. My name is Raj Chaudhary. I'm the CEO of an agency called Alloy, based out of Atlanta, Georgia, in the States. Majority of our folks are in Atlanta, but we also have an office in New Orleans, as well as a, a bunch of remote employees throughout the US. We specialize in marketing for technology brands, so specifically brands that focus on SaaS products, fintech, cybersecurity, help IT. We provide kind of end-to-end marketing, everything from, you know, creative to development to PR and influence to performance marketing. It's a fun brand. I know that you've got quite a bit of experience with M&A over the years. Can you give us a bit of background of your career? Yeah, sure. So I started off in the late 90s, right out of college, in fact. I started an agency called Spunlogic, which was a web development kind of creative shop with my old business partner, who is my college roommate in the States. So that's how I ended up in the States. But we had a small agency that kind of grew pretty quickly and then ended up selling that to a private equity firm. And then from there, we worked with a PE firm to then acquire some additional agencies and assemble a unit that was called Engage. That we grew to about 300 25 folks, and then later sold that into Publicis, ran within Publicis, did some M&A with them, and then kind of did the same thing again with another unit, basically scaling it up, selling again to private equity, doing some additional acquisitions. So a lot of my background is buying and selling agencies. You know, So I moved away from the creative space, which is where I came from in the agency space, to more the business side and the finance side. So even with Alloy, this agency is really an acquisition roll-up, so we acquire agencies to assemble a larger unit, essentially. Okay, I've got loads of questions, but was it SpunLogic, the first business that you set up? Yeah, SpunLogic, exactly, yeah. So tell me a bit about how that acquisition came about, and were you looking for private equity investment, or did they approach you? And also, I guess, can you just give me a sort of overview of like what the size and shape of that business was in terms of revenue and employees? Yeah, sure. So I want to preface that we started the agency when both Jeff and I were 22 years old. So I'd say that we knew next to nothing, if not nothing at all. Bootstrapped it and grew it all the way through. We brought in a couple of additional partners, but, you know, brought it up to about 75 folks so a little over 10 million in top line revenue. And at the time, you know, I think we were both in this era of, we were just growing so fast and so well. This was, you know, the mid 2000s, right? That we knew we could accelerate it further, but, 
you know, we only knew what we knew. And so we thought we'd built it to an extent and didn't know how to then acquire additional agencies ourselves. You know, we didn't have the skill sets. So we thought bringing in or selling into another entity, a larger entity, would kind of give us that experience to, you know, do M&A, but using experience from other players. So we went to market in late 2007, and we had a number of buyers. We had certainly, at that size, a little over 10 million. We definitely attracted a lot of the larger agencies who are looking to tack on another unit. We attracted some PE firms, private equity firms, that were looking to add our unit into a larger portfolio. It wasn't big enough to be a portfolio company itself. I said that you know a unit needs to be more than 25 million, be a portfolio company. So we would definitely attack onto something else. And then certainly, you know, you get the interest of the holding companies, but at that scale, it's still a fairly small unit going to be attacked onto something else, essentially. So we really look for a buyer to give us the experience to scale. And, you know, our decision to do that came probably a year and a half to two years prior. So you have to really think through it and set it up. We ended up closing in, I think, March of 2008, which was... Sheer luck. <laughs> okay. This was right before the housing crisis, which was, you know, roughly in May or June of that year. And so, you know, I'd like to say that we were smart enough to time the market, but we would not. We just lucked out big time. And a lot of this is luck and finding the right buyer, the right kind of partner, the right seller, and getting two things together. It's a very, very tough thing to do. Okay. So you were saying that what the selling into private equity gave you the opportunity to go out and do some acquisitions yourself. Now, I'm interested in where the interest in M&A came from. Were you looking at doing that before you sold to private equity or was that something that private equity wanted to do with you? Yeah, we'd looked at how we could expand further. So at the time, SpunLogic was probably one of the dominant private agencies in the Southeast. So it was a very strong unit on kind of UX at the time, and back in those days, we were kind of, you know, creating what UX was and, you know, a lot of the social aspects of, you know, Facebook was fairly new and we we're one of the pioneers within there and everything else. So we were pretty hot shot. And so to expand further, we were looking at both organic growth and also how we could expand into a new market. We were tapping out the Atlanta market. So we were looking at acquiring units either in, in Charlotte, in Miami, I mean, other areas. And when we're doing that, we thought that was our expansion strategy, but we'd only had the experience of running one office at the time, you know, really location-based was the way you're operating agencies these days, not so much, right? So I remember we went to our board, we had an advisory board, and we had done a lot of the research to look at some small units to acquire, to expand. And we looked at this couple of shops and Fort Lauderdale and Charlotte, North Carolina. So we're still staying within our market, if you will. And I remember going in, Jeff and I and the other partners in the business were like gung-ho about this expansion. And we went to our board and they said, listen, guys, you know how to operate one unit. You have no idea yet how to operate multi-location, multiple P&Ls, you know, what an acquisition really is, how you're going to finance this, how you're going to maintain cash flow and everything else. You guys are not ready for this. <laughs> yeah. 
we had to take a humble pie there a little bit and say, you know what, you're right. We don't know. We think we know, but we don't know and need to gain that experience. So that's kind of what pushed us into the decision. Okay, let's go find a backer here who has done it before and can help us figure it out. I'm interested because all of my previous guests on this podcast, it's been trade sales. So I'm interested in how private equity put the deal together, sort of how much equity they take. And did they put capital into your business to go out and make those acquisitions? So can you talk a bit about the, how the whole thing was structured? Yeah. So in our example, the PE firm actually already had a set strategy. And so we were basically aligning into that strategy. So they already gone down the path of already acquiring a couple of units together, right? And so they had a thesis and play. And so we were basically tacking into that thesis. And so they weren't the only other players. There were other PEs using similar kind of theses, but generally the same, basically buying up a couple of different units, playing together, and you're trying to create, you know, uh, more juice out of it, if you will. So the way it works is basically they do 100% buyout of the company. And typically what happens is that portion of that 100% is in cash consideration. And so that can vary in whatever. It could be 50-50, it could be 60-40, 70-30, whatever the deal structure is, right? And then the remaining consideration is roll-up equity. You basically, you're rolling over that into the new unit uh, you're going into, right? So in our case, we got a cash portion for the value of logic, and then the rest of the value we rolled over into equity into the unit, which was called a gauge, uh, essentially. So then now we had stock in the next unit and that roll-up strategy and that next exit, if you will. Okay, so you have to really believe in yes. the mission and the thesis of the PE firm that's approaching you. And what about when you went out and made your own acquisitions, when SpunLogic went out and did some acquisitions? Did your backers provide the capital to do that? How did that work? Yeah, as I said, they already did a, did a number of acquisitions, but you know the ones we did later on with them, they provided you know, the financing or they leveraged the business and did, you know, basically debt equity on that. So, but typically the PE firm is really helping steer that with the management team and how they're going to finance those next acquisitions, right? So whether that's leveraging, you know, additional debts in the business or additional funding that they're going to provide and put in into the business, it can be done in various ways. But it's typically in conjunction with the management team and the PE firm. Okay. So when you say leveraging debt in the business, that's in the target business that you're looking to acquire. Or the pre-existing. In this case, you know, because you can leverage a pre-existing business and take additional debt on the business. Okay, great. So then how long was that period? How many acquisitions did you go out and make? Yeah. So Engage did a total of five acquisitions, four actual agencies and one technology company. Yeah. And so from the period of literally, you know, 2008, and then we sold the business in 2013. So that's a five-year period. So the typical time frame in most PEs is that they want to be in and out of those businesses within this kind of four to six-year period. Some larger ones will go, will go longer, but typically, let's say the average is four to six years. Okay. And were those acquisitions into spun logic or were they into the engaged group into engage yeah so basically spun logic went into engage everything went into engage okay so and you just 
started working with that team to help go out and, and find those other businesses. But they wanted you, presumably they wanted you to focus on running SpunLogic as well. So were your roles kind of split? No, I mean, essentially my role was now engage, right? So when a unit gets acquired, you know, it typically gets folded into the primary brand. You know, sometimes you can run it as a separate brand, which is also very typical, and you can run separate P&Ls. In our case, we're basically pulling everything into a single P&L, and that one management team was running everything, right? So there were elements certainly where, you know, we ran some units separately for a year or two, but then ultimately everything came together. And so my primary role was actually running the operations of Engage as a whole. I'm working with my CFO, you know, working with our CEO, working with the board and so forth to operationalize these units, acquire additional units, you know, rebalance the entire unit, both talent and processes and, and so forth around. Okay. So was Spun the first acquisition for Engage then? No, it was the third, actually. Third. Yeah. How did it come about that you ended up running Engage and not one of the other owners of one of the previous acquisitions or how did that come about? Just to be clear, I wasn't the CEO for that unit. Really heading up operations, I'd say, so more like operations, a CEO. right? So mainly, you know, merging units, taking the existing units, breaking them apart, bringing them together, you know, helping with new units we're acquiring, bringing into the fold of Engage, that kind of side of the work. So it was largely the past owners of the companies that were acquired that were part of that management team. Sometimes there was new folks would bring in. But largely, everyone had a stake in making Engage successful, right? They sold the existing units, they got some cash out of that, and then they rolled over the remaining value into Engage to make that a success. Got it. And how do you not end up with quite a big management team? Because as presumably there were sort of eight acquisitions in total. And if you've got two founders, you can potentially end up with quite a big team. Yeah. Not all founders stay, right? Right. Uh, most founders don't stay, in fact, right? So depending on the deal structure, you know, some are held to stay, they will then earn out. And then once they earn out's done, typically they don't stay. In our case, we didn't have an earn out, but we saw that the greatest value we could provide back into Engage was actually being on that management team. So that was the decision we individually made, but certainly... You know, there's structures where it's you're held in there. And in our case, we were not. And our PE firm kind of believed in us and our management team did as well. And our employees did. And so we, we stayed there through the next acquisition. And what was the level of sort of communication and interaction you had with the PE firm throughout those few years? It was very kind of collaborative. I'd say they controlled our board, obviously. But each of the folks who had sold the business had a stake. And engage, right? But certainly the majority owner was a PE firm. So they were on the board, the controlling board. Certainly everything from board sessions, just keeping them aware of the business, you know, bringing up opportunities, bringing up issues and so forth. So board PE firms can be, you know, hands off or fairly hands on, depending on the structure. In this case, I'd say our PE our firm was fairly hands off in the sense of the day to day running of the business but very hands-on in generally the strategy that we're taking. Okay. And what were the relative sizes of the units that they acquired? 
was 10 million the smallest? Yeah, the smallest was probably about a $4 million unit. And then the largest, probably at the time of acquisition, was probably about a $14 million unit. So all in all, Engage was, you know, roughly about 45 million in top line. Okay. That's all of it was small acquisitions, some larger, some didn't pan out as well, some panned out better than others. So there's also that risk point that goes into play. You acquire a unit and, you know, once you get in there, it's maybe not as put together as you thought, or their integration is going to be a bit more challenging. And so you can some, sometimes lose value in one unit and gain value in another unit. And then you sold it to Publicis in 2013. 2013, yeah. So August of 2013, sold it into Publicis. And then again, we had a number of you know, PE buyers interested in Engage. We had a number of holding companies interested in Engage, a couple of larger independents. You know, when you go to market, you have, you know, you put to bed essentially, right? And so you always get interest. And so we had a number of competing offers, which is always a good thing. And in this case, Publicis won out and, you know, we ended up merging the Engage unit with another unit, another Publicis unit called Moxie at the time. And so those two units were kind of fairly equal in size. As I said, Engage was roughly about 325 and Moxie at the time was close to 400 folks. So combined unit was about 700, a little over 700 people and a little over 100 million in, in top line. So pretty sizable unit kind of coming together. And so we rebranded everything into Moxie in that case. So that you know, a lot of us stayed on and some left at that point. That's interesting. So during the time you were building up Engage, the group, how focused were you on sort of building it to sell to a specific seller? Or, you know, did the stuff that you put in place during that time, was that a sort of deliberately made it attractive to someone like Publicis? Or how did the sort of the theory behind it? Essentially, you're trying to build a unit that's going to have a level of defensibility and also have desire for multiple types of bias, right? So it wasn't necessarily built to sell into Publicis or a PE firm. It's, you know, I think the market tells you when you're in demand and when you're not, right? And if you've got a good unit that's growing aggressively, does good work, you're going to attract good buyers. So whether that's holding company or private equity or strategic, it can vary, right? So in this case, we had interest from both strategics. So strategics are basically, say, another unit that finds maybe your capabilities, your geography, or your revenue streams as a strategic advantage to propel their strategy. And it doesn't have to be another agency. It can also be a large client. It can be consultancy. It can be something else complete. Or it's a strategic buy. It could be, uh, you know, I've had an agency where Adobe's trying to buy me as an example, right? That's a strategic for their pro services teams, things like that. So a holding company is going to buy you just to really gain strength in their EBITDA. So they're trying to increase that. They're public companies. They have to make a sizable bet here to increase shareholder value. A PE firm is basically buying you because they're buying a bunch of things and they think they can find greater value with these things coming together to then get a 3x return on that initial investment, at least. So you're basically, when you're looking to sell, first off, 
you should be very clear on that objective, right? You either are or you're not, you know, and you run a business two different ways, say, right? One's a lifestyle business. The other is an aggressive growth engine that you're growing to sell eventually. And so in our scenario, when you're PE owned, the only objective is to sell. So how long did you work with Publicis then? And when did you go out and set up on your own? Yeah, so I didn't work with Publicis for too long. It was roughly about, I'd say about nine months, and that was ready to run the, the merger between the two units, between Engage and Moxie. And then I then got recruited out of Publicis to be a CEO for a technology company, for a publicly traded company. So I moved away from the agency space, if you will, into the hide gun CEO role, you know, which is also into the pure software space. So I run a unit called Blink Media, which is in the ad tech space period. And again, you know, a lot of the same kind of different units getting bought up and merged and so forth. And then, then after that, I went to run back into the agency space to help run a unit called Brightwave, which was email marketing agency, scale that. And we sold that to Advent, which is a very, very large PE firm that had a unit called Insira. So we were a unit coming into the Insira unit, if you will. So same kind of stuff again, like we built it fast and then sell it to a strategic or in this case, a large PE. Okay. Tell me a bit about your current roll-up plans. Yeah. Alloy, you know, we're in the second year uh, right now. So we acquired the first agency last year, which was ARPR. It was a PR agency, very strong in the kind of B2B technology space, hence the kind of focus. So that was our first acquisition. And then April of this year, we acquired the second unit, which was Norwell Digital, which is a creative and technology shop. So that the general plan is basically, you know, one acquisition a year. So we'll acquire roughly, you know, four units, I'd say four to five units. The plan is to go from zero top line revenue on a basis standpoint to 35 million on top line revenue within five years. So it's a fairly fast trajectory. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space, and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. Okay, and what's the sort of thesis for that roll-up? The general thesis is, are we trying to control the B2B marketing space, mid-market specifically. So typically when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at where's the space that isn't uh, served as well. You know, where's the work knowledge break? Where's the greatest opportunity? So for us, we feel that there's this interesting space in mid-market technology brands where marketing itself is very transactional and not highly creative in a lot of ways, right? So we're trying to build a, a agency that can really service that market and expand extremely well and can control that space. We have a, a stage one and a stage two kind of build up. We're in this kind of stage one build up right now, which is, you know, zero to 35 in top line. And that's 35 million. What that means is in headcounts, the size is about 175 to 200 people, depending on, on the structure of your agency. If you've got, you know, a lot of 
high billable type folks. It can be a little bit different to maybe lower uh, cost uh, type labor. That, so the headcap can vary, but generally 175 to 200 people. What that does is it creates a unit that has a lot of depth in, in services and depth in talent and is then established being known for something, right? It's really hard to have, you know, a 20 or 30 person unit and be known for something, right? You're just not going to control the market space as well, right? So this first stage is to get us to that stage one, and then is to go find another financial backup, most likely a PE firm, right? To then say, here's a 175 person unit that's generating 35 in top line, that's generating at least a million Nibida that is stable. It's known in the marketplace now. Now what can we do to fuel it even further? And so the plan then for stage two is to take funding at that stage and then take it from 35 to 150 million in top line within a three to four year period. So a very fast trajectory and that moves it from a 175 person headcount to roughly about an 800 person unit. At that stage, you're increasing the value of the unit tremendously. Yeah. So this phase one, is it, are you working on this on your own or do you have business partners? Yeah, this one is on my own. It's also my first time uh, doing it on my own, my own cash and all that kind of stuff. So that, that comes with its own challenges, like any other business. You're kind of betting on what you know and how you've, you've seen it what your strategy is and, and everything else uh, and just finding great talent and, and great businesses that are strong in their fundamentals that have great work that you can pull together and a, and a strong culture that's actually going to be complementary and not kind of destroy itself. And I was just going to ask what the sort of size of the current, the two deals that you've done so far. And also if you can just talk a bit about how you've structured the deals, that would be useful. Yeah, for sure. The first company was ARPR is roughly about 25-person shop. So, in fact, both agencies are in that size. So I'm, I'm typically targeting units that are, say, 20 people to, let's say, 40 people, right? And really, in revenue, you know, these are units that are underneath 5 million, right? Or just about 5 million in top line, right? So... What tends to happen with those types of businesses is that there's solid work being done, there's solid talent, but there's not much of a scaled-out infrastructure, you know, to become a 100, 200-person unit. So sales and marketing infrastructure and then people and operations infrastructure is equally important in the services business, right? At the end of the day, we operate and optimize and deploy out talent is what we do, right? And so it's interesting how most units actually don't pay enough attention to the people side of things. They pay a lot of attention to the sales and marketing, but enough to the resourcing side of things and operations, which is all. So yeah, those two units were roughly about 25 each, right? And so, you know, the current size of the unit now is a little over 65, getting into about 70 people. So there's organic growth plus the acquisitions that come into play. So we're pretty much on track on our five-year plan right now. Yeah, so as I said, the deal structures for those, I can't disclose those in detail, but the way I do deal structures in general is that there's a cash component and there's a small rollover component into Alloy, right? Because the belief is that we can scale this and add additional 
value creation to the entire organization and to everyone. Outside of that, I typically don't like to do earnout structures. I think if people want to be here, they want to be here. And if they don't, they shouldn't be here generally. If they believe in their numbers and their business, they'll fall to that. If not, then they're holding that as well. So you don't do earnouts, but will you do an element of deferred consideration in a deal? Yeah. Okay. But you just don't attach it to performance? I don't. Okay. Because to be honest, you know, unless they're going to be running their own PL, it's really hard for them to try and control and maintain it. Yeah. Right. And so I'm not buying them because they have a strong infrastructure in their PL and in their business operations. I'm instead establishing, you know, the stronger business operations, the stronger financial cadences of alloy and then pulling it into that. So it'd be unfair for me to then say, oh, and I'm going to hold you onto these numbers that you have no real control. And what does your day-to-day look like? How do you spend your time? My day-to-day is mainly on the people management side of things. So leadership, certainly, you know, vision where we're taking things. I spend a decent amount of my time pre-acquisition before acquiring on sourcing and evaluating. So if I am buying a unit, I'm literally looking at probably 75 to 100 units, right? So that just, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of meeting the entrepreneurs, it's listening to them, listening about their journey and what they love to do, what they don't love to do and things like that, seeing there's a match. So I spend a lot of time on that. It typically takes me, you know, I'd say nine to 12 months to source a deal. So source and close a deal, should I say. And then once I've closed, you know, I'm in integration. I'm integrating the unit. So in this case, you know, we closed on Narwhal in April. We spent the first three months aggressively integrating in the culture first. I tend to focus on the culture integration first before I try to integrate the work product and upselling and so forth, which is also not very typical. Most go straight to the revenue side of things. But my general, if the people don't like each other and can't work together, you're going to have problems down the road. So you start on that instead. So we're now moving into the second phase of our integration with Narwhal, which is the work side of things. Teams actually, you know, culture doesn't stop. So next month, we're taking the entire team to Cancun and get them kind of having fun and learning about the evolution of how we do their work, how we better our work product for our clients and so forth. And then I'm starting to source for the next deal already. And that will likely be, you know, later in 2024, which is kind of crazy to say, but I have to start sourcing for that deal. And so a lot of my time day to day is also just, you know, finding the right kind of agencies, looking at the market, seeing what's changing what our clients are wanting, how our people are evolving the work and, and everything else. But largely it's senior level management of the people and it's sourcing and, and M&A integration. Okay. Can you talk in general terms about valuation multiples and, you know, just sort of what could someone expect if they have a, you know, 2 million revenue service business versus 5 million versus 10 million? It varies on the segment you're in, right? I'd say in general. So most of my career has been, I'd say, in the digital and advertising and media space, both digital and traditional spaces. But generally, I came from the digital and kind of ended up also running traditional creative shops, advertising shops, and media shops. So scale does make a big difference, obviously. It goes back to like how, 
how defensible is all that revenue and how good is the work and how strong is the talent to actually stay on. So I'd say, first off, a unit that's, let's say, 2 million, right? Most services-based valuations are done on multiple EBITDA, right? So earnings before, interest depreciation, and amortization, right? So, you know, a typical, let's say, $10 million unit or $20 million unit is going to really yield, you know, an EBITDA multiple anywhere of, say, 5x to 12 right? Maybe even 14x. 18 months ago, you could probably get 14x. Now, maybe less, right? So it's also very determined on how fast that unit has been growing. So if a unit's been growing really well and it's got good product market fit, it's doing great work, it's got a great client revenue stream, it's well diversified in its revenue, all those aspects of things, right? It's known for something. It's going to demand a slightly higher multiple than a unit that's maybe been, you know, its growth trajectory has only been, you know, five to, you know, 10% year on year. And that's a little bit deceiving when you're talking about a $2 million unit, right? Adding in, you know, a client can change that growth number quite a bit, right? So it's a bit deceiving. So I tend not to value businesses less than 5 million on EBITDA. It's just not an accurate view in my opinion, right? Because owners are taking draws, they're often running a lot of other expenses for tax reasons through their business. It is not a clean way of looking when you look at it the really it's really near impossible to say that's a clean number. So, you know, if I was to say, you know, a four X multiple or six X multiple on a unit that's two million or five million, that's really hard to qualify. Really, really hard. Right. There's a, you know, not to be too crude, but there's a lot of bullshit in that number, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So I would say instead, I tend to use a multiple revenue. Right. So I think if a unit has been growing well, the work is good and so forth. Right. A $2 million business doesn't have the infrastructure. Right. A $4 million business doesn't either. Right. But if the fundamentals are solid, I'm going to say, yeah, this revenue is solid. I'm going to say this, you know, less of this, there's very little risk of losing that revenue, right? For a year period or three year period or whatever. I'm going to say that's maybe valued at 1x of that rep, right? Something that has more volatility, I'm going to say it's only valued at 0.5 of that rep, right? So I may end up at a 1x, right? So say $2 million business may be worth $2 million. Right, or it may be worth just one million, even if it's got two million on top, just because that revenue may be off, or the talent may be not as strong, or the work itself isn't. Various different factors. So I'll tend to use multiples of revenue up until, let's say, a ten million dollar business, where at that point you have to have good, strong fundamentals in your P and L, that you can then truly do an assessment of the true earnings potential of that. Prior to that, yeah, it's hard to do. Yeah, that sort of stacks up with my experience as well. And yeah, I mean, I'm personally looking at businesses in the sort of one to two million dollar mark. And yeah, it's, it's very hard to sort of make sense of the numbers in some cases. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an art, right? So I, I think if you're buying, I think the biggest thing you could try and do is look at what you believe you can actually generate out of the unit once you pulled it in. 
and once you normalize its expenses, because its expense ratios and what is spending, what is investing or not investing it, you have to rethink and bring it into the shop you're bringing in. Or if you're going to be taking over a unit, you've got to think through that and say, you know, really, what is this? And say, okay, well, that's worth X. Where can I take it from? You know, the other way I look at it, Barnaby, I'm not too sure if this is the right approach or not for other folks, is I look at it from a time standpoint, right? So if I was to grow alloy organically, right, and my goal was to grow it to at least 35 million in top line, right, to do that organically, and if everything was perfect, right, the economy was solid, the clients were just golden, I can grow, you know, the business concurrently just, you know, year and year consistently, right, without any kind of ets or anything like that. It'd still take me a good 15 years to build alloy to 35 million. And that's if everything went perfect, right? And as you know, things don't go perfect, right? So my acquisition strategy is literally to cut down time. I can achieve the same thing by acquiring units in five years, that would have taken me 15 or more years. So I look at that value there, right? That time value. And you can look at it from a cash value standpoint, from an investment standpoint, everything else. So I then assign that into how I'm thinking about something I'm buying. If I'm buying something that's going to accelerate me faster on my overall path, it's worth a little bit more to me. If it's going to be good, but not great, it's going to be worth less to me. Yeah. And I think every buyer is going to look at it a little bit differently, but it, it is definitely an art. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you're taking a bet. You know, it sounds very exciting. And the fact that you've completed on your second acquisition already, you seems like you're well on the way to seeing the plan through. So, yeah. And again, I think if you focus first on the people, the people and the work itself, or if that comes together well, the numbers work itself out. If you're thinking about just the numbers and you're not thinking about the people and the product, Itself is just not going to work out. I can wishfully think of those numbers, but my concentration isn't in creating great work and having great people, then it doesn't happen. Fantastic. I mean, I think I've got all that I wanted from that. Yeah. So I think maybe just as a sort of parting question, you know, a lot of my listeners are running production companies, creative agencies at the lower end of the market. So, you know, what do they need to be thinking about to prepare? their business for a sale yeah so you know clean numbers right i think have clean numbers make sure you've taken time to really think through your balance sheet think through your p l especially production company that actually does have some assets in place that can affect the balance sheet you know that two to four sometimes it's, a lot of it is basically on how much cash uh, is coming through the business right and then you know, what kind of capital expenditures you actually have and place so against the balance sheets coming to. So spend some time and money on a good account who knows how to structure your P&L right way and your balance sheet in the right way to tell the right story. You know, if you can't do that, any decent buyer is going to be able to see the story through the numbers pretty fast. And if it looks unorganized, it's going to come off that way. You're not going to get the value you're going to get out of the business spend the time on the numbers itself to make sure it's clean and you're being transparent, right? There's nothing to hide here. Like, you know, 
course, any diligence is, is going to try and find things. And so the stronger you are in your numbers and your fundamentals of your business, the stronger you are to defend this diligence cycle. Secondly, I'd say if you're building it to sell it, know that subjective and make sure your management team knows that. I think oftentimes I find a lot of entrepreneurs who don't tell the rest of their team. And so it's a big surprise and things fall apart from there uh, typically. So I typically find it when the entrepreneurs are being honest with their people that this is where we're, we're going towards, they're going to find that, you know, I'm going to find the a number two and number three person that's just as strong as those entrepreneurs and just as eager to take this to the next chapter, the next growth uh, stage. And then I'd say lastly, knowing your strengths and weaknesses. Building a unit from five people to 10 people to 20 to 30 to 50 to 100 and so forth requires the entrepreneurs to completely change who they are and what that unit is every single stage of those. And if you can't, you're typically going to get stuck. You've got to recognize that and know when it's time for someone else to take this, take the reins. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.